the National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Just in case you don't know, the Irish Times is producing a daily confronting Corona podcast and it has updates on all the developments in this constantly changing situation. You can find it on irishtimes.com and it really is worth listening to. The latest episode actually features an item about women and pregnancy and the virus, so that may be of interest to many of you. In today's episode, I talk to Margaret Heffernan, the businesswoman and entrepreneur with 12 million views of her TED Talks on YouTube, and who, with incredible timing, has just published a book called Uncharted, which I suppose exposes the folly of anybody trying to predict the future, especially in business. She has lots to say about how employers and companies and indeed individuals can move through this crisis, but also a load of hopeful ideas about how creativity is going to be key in the recovery too. And I think you're going to be really interested in what Margaret has to say. Well, that's all later on. How are you all doing? It's a very hard old slog, isn't it? But I suppose we just have to keep in mind why we are doing it and that by staying home and Obeying the rules, um, even though it's very hard for some of us, <laughs> we are saving lives. Um, in this house, it's my children's birthday tomorrow. So that's been interesting planning all of that in the current situation. They're turning 11 years old and it is going to be a bit of a strange one, but they're they're being really great about it. And they're having a small party on Zoom. And by the sounds of it, they're just going to be baking all day. And they wanted breakfast in bed as well. But sure, we can have plenty of proper parties when it's all over. If you're celebrating a birthday in your family, I hope you're still finding ways to make it fun, which is what we are definitely planning to do. Thanks for all your emails and your comments and your kind feedback on Twitter and through our email, the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. I wanted to bring you a couple of emails because they're from quite interesting places. This one comes from St. Martin's Island. The listener says that the podcast is great food for the soul. Zooming with my buddies today, one from Indianapolis, one from North Carolina and two ladies from the Netherlands. We thoroughly enjoyed the episode about the sex toys. My friends are also huge Marion Keys fans. For me, the most poignant moment was with your mom when you said you miss her. You shed a little tear on all our behalves. I am separated from my mum cocooning in Kingscourt and from my children 
leading their own isolated lives in the Netherlands. The Prime Minister of St. Martin is also a leading lady of stellar stuff when it comes to the corona crisis and she should be added to the list of notable women politicians. This too will pass. Kind regards, Breed van der Meijen. Thank you very much, Breed, for that. And this email comes from Brisbane, Australia. And she says, I just wanted to say I adore the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I started to listen when I came to Australia last April, and I've loved listening to the Irish accents. Roisin sounds like a friend of mine and it reminds me of home as well as keeping me up to date with what's going on. Ireland has seriously come a long way since I left Dublin in 1989 to work in London. I retired in 2019 and myself and my husband bought a motor home and a car which we tow and we plan to circumnavigate Australia. We set off from Brisbane on the 17th of April 2019. So today is the anniversary of the beginning of our trip. We have the most amazing time travelling over 23,000 kilometres. Australia is such a beautiful country. When the coronavirus crisis began to emerge, we were in Melbourne. So we decided to travel north to Brisbane, where my husband's cousin lives, as they are our only family in Australia. It was too difficult to stay in the motorhome. Most of the caravan parks have closed. So we've rented an apartment in a town called Kings Beach on the Sunshine Coast, just north of Brisbane. It's a beautiful seaside holiday town and we're lucky to have a selection of gorgeous beaches to roam and the temperatures are generally mid-twenties, even in winter, which we are moving towards now. So we managed to complete the big lap, as they call it here, albeit the last 1,780 kilometres were over four days, as we didn't know when Queensland were going to close the borders. I listened to Roisin chatting with Marion Keyes on the podcast today and I was laughing out loud as I walked along the beach. It's difficult to be so far from home at this time, but it was so uplifting to have a laugh. Thanks again. And that's from Sarah. Well, thank you to Sarah listening in Melbourne, maybe even on the beach as we speak. And before we get going with the episode, just a couple of news items relating to coronavirus and women. Uh, About two weeks before this year's annual April deadline for every company in the UK employing at least 250 people to publish their gender pay gap, the British government has announced it was letting businesses off the hook. We recognise that employers across the country are facing unprecedented uncertainty and pressure at this time they said, um, and so that we feel it's only right to suspend enforcement of gender pay gap reporting this year. Uh, I mean, some people approved of the decision, reasoning that many businesses were trying to stay afloat. But the scholars of Maslow's hierarchy of needs will know that when survival is at stake, everything else becomes irrelevant. So it's just one way in which kind of feminism and those issues are going to be kind of uh, left behind a little bit, as many things are because of the pandemic. And the other thing that caught our eye was the fact that um, parents who bring young children with them as they're buying their essential groceries in supermarkets have been saying that some supermarkets have been, you know, complaining about them bringing their kids in. And I just think this is terrible because, I mean, if anyone's bringing a kid into a supermarket, it's for good reason. A lot of people are either widowed or they are single parents and they don't have anywhere else for the kid to go. So I hope that people, um, by this being highlighted, people are good and cut parents a bit of slack and I've been in supermarkets with my kids without the kids and I haven't seen any you know instances where children have been you know doing anything bad so I just think we need to try and stop this corona shaming that's going on um, in various ways by various people so that's my little spoke on that now we'll get into the episode proper Margaret Heffernan is someone we've had on the podcast before 
and she's what I would describe as a rock of good sense. She's the kind of voice we need now in these uncertain times more than ever. She's an entrepreneur, a CEO, a writer and keynote speaker. She's currently a part-time lecturer at the University of Bath School of Management in England. She was born in Texas, grew up in the Netherlands and worked for several years in England for the BBC where she produced programmes before going to America to head up various multimedia companies. And she's been the CEO of five businesses and has written six books that explore business and effective leadership. With quite amazing timing, her latest book, Uncharted, is about the fact that it's quite impossible for businesses or indeed individuals to predict the future because the complexity of modern life makes that really impossible. And this pandemic shows that to be true in the starkest sense. She's a really impressive person with lots of sensible things to say about how we can move forward in these strange times. And Margaret began by explaining how the book came about. Margaret, I think it is hilarious because we spoke last year about your book and it all sounded great then. But since then, a lot has happened and your book is called Uncharted, How to Map the Future it's about how we can't predict the future and how the future is very uncertain. And then along comes, what else? A pandemic to show us that exactly your premise is so correct. You must be feeling quite smug. Well, I mean, it's it's funny because <laughs> for a book that says we can't forecast, you know, it looks like I did perfect forecasting, right? I think, you know, I think the truth is that what I was looking at was something a lot a lot deeper, if you like, than the news cycle and looking at the things that are always with us. And actually, I think uncertainty is always with us. And in a way, you know, technology has sort of pers- persuaded us that, oh, no, we can calculate, you know, exactly how long it's going to take me to get from A to B. I can calculate exactly which restaurants I'm going to like and which people I'm going to like. And actually, everything's becoming very predictable. And kind of just when we started thinking we could control our lives, you know, this terrible event occurs to remind us that actually that idea of perfect predictability has always been and always will be a complete myth. Because you actually have a bit in the book about epidemics, don't you? Well, actually, it's quite funny because I'm reading, I'm doing the American, the proofs for the American edition. So I'm having that odd experience of rereading one's own book. And it's amazing how with epidemics were all over it, you know, that the founding fathers of forecasting all suffered from tuberculosis. You know, there's this chapter about how history doesn't repeat itself and looks at, you know, the huge mistake that Americans made in epidemics in the 1970s. There is, you know, I think, you know, what is, at least for me, a very moving chapter about the AIDS epidemic and what we could learn from that. And then at the end, the last chapter in the book is about epidemic preparedness. So, um, you know, I didn't really notice that subplot, if you like, but now it just jumps out with incredible clarity. It really does. Um, and listen, talk to me about your you're a business guru. You're someone who whose job it is to go around talking to, you know, some really big companies about their strategy and all that kind of thing. How what's your observations about how a business is dealing with this Quite unprecedented situation. Yeah. Well, it's a very big spectrum. Um, You go from very good companies that are really busting a gut to look after their employees and their suppliers and their whole ecosystem, um, you know, to those who are, you know, carrying on paying themselves very well and then just crushing their suppliers in order to um, 
keep their business profitable. So it's everything from really remarkable examples of sacrifice and clarity to really kind of venal beating up on the weak and everything in between. I mean, for me, there are quite a lot of lessons to be learned in this, but I think the one I'm focused on at the moment is one reason we're in this mess is because we fell prey to what I think of as the myth of efficiency, which is if we thought if we just kind of cut everything to the bone, so there's no fat, there's no waste, that'll be super efficient. The truth is, that's why our hospitals are overwhelmed, because we actually cut them to the bone. And you always, if you want to have a resilient business or you want to have a resilient society, you have to spare capacity for surprises, for the unpredictable events. And in thinking about the future, once you recognize that you can't predict it perfectly, what that means is you can't afford to be too efficient because that's dangerous. And I think, especially after the banking crisis, you know, we really went hell for leather for austerity, for super efficiency, for super thin margins. And I think we are now reaping that whirlwind. What I hope we take out of this crisis, one of the things I hope we take out of this crisis, is that efficiency is fine when you really can predict events, but where there is any uncertainty, too much efficiency will leave you dangerously exposed. Margaret, I think that's an excellent point. And you're someone who comes at things very creatively, I think, from having read various works that you've done. Like, say, for example, now you're hearing of lots of companies, they're going to have to, um, if they don't lay off staff, they're going to have to make significant pay cuts, say 10 to 20 percent or even greater than that. Are you looking at, do you know about more creative ways that companies could be looking at this? For example, someone said to me the other day, what about, you know, giving uh, employees a lot more holidays or, you know, a year and doing it in a way that's actually more beneficial to the person rather than just slashing the wages. Are you looking at those kind of options for companies? So I think there are a whole bunch of options. Um, I think the the most tried and tested are things like, first of all, saying, is there someone who just like to take a year off? So um, after 9-11, the airlines in America did this and discovered there are quite a lot of people in their workforce that actually wanted to go and do a degree or, you know, take a year off to look after a sick parent or something like that. So the first thing is to say, you know, is there anyone who wants who wants to stay in the company but wants to take off a year or two? The second thing is to think, is there anybody who wants to retire now? Obviously, that's a very standard thing. I think definitely giving people opportunity for flexibility and asking them to make the proposals. You know, no manager on earth really knows what every individual employee would most like for themselves. So create an environment in which people can make proposals. You know, maybe some people like to go part-time or do a job share or, um, as you say, have more holiday. So I think all of those things should be explored. But I think there's something else which you in Ireland understand better than most, which is if you need to make a really difficult decision where there are are no obviously right answers, the best thing to do is ask people to get together and discuss together what would be acceptable and bearable to the large majority of people. 
That is exactly what you did in both of your citizens' assemblies, which is you looked at a cross-set, you took a cross-section of society and said, this is these are thorny issues, right? Gay marriage is a thorny issue. Uh, abortion is a thorny issue. In, educate yourself about the whole situation and tell us what you recommend. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to apply that same deliberative process to large companies, because the truth is leaders are employed to make good decisions for the company and for society as a whole. But most leaders I work with don't know the workforce that well, and they don't know society as a whole that well. And if they want to find out what would be a really legitimate decision, the best thing they can do is ask. Margaret, that sounds wonderful. Um, But do you think in a situation like this where employers are really finding this very uh, stressful and need to make very important decisions, maybe quite quickly, that that kind of it's almost conciliatory. It's very it might seem quite radical to them. Is there a way for a company who's done things a certain way to to change now and sort of take on what you're saying? Is that is that possible? Well, I think if they don't change now, if a shared trauma doesn't change them, then they have a much bigger problem, which is their lack of capacity to imagine the future for themselves which means they're just going to be swept up in a future that somebody else creates for them. I think what we do not want to see is a return to the austerity that, you know, your country and mine experienced after the banking crisis, which led people, you know, to be terribly hurt. It led to terrible extremes of inequality. And I think in was widely felt to be unjust. And I think, in this particular crisis, we have to think carefully, first of all, about people who after the banking crisis don't wanna go through something like that again. And secondly, we have to think about, yes, there are gonna be really hard trade-offs to be made. If they're going to be successful, people need to feel that they're legitimate, that they're just, that they're on the basis of actually understanding what people and society need. And to me, the great lesson of the uh, Citizens' Assembly around abortion was that even the people who didn't agree with the outcome felt that the process had been right and fair. And so it seems to me that before jumping to conclusions, assuming they know what's best for everyone, business leaders would do much, much better to find forums and methods to ask people because they need the legitimacy of more than just their own intelligence and their title. Yeah. Margaret, a lot of companies ha- are in the situation now where that they never thought they'd be in, where in our case of the company Irish Times, every single person's working at home. In other cases, it's 90%, 80%, 60%. What do you think people can learn from that in terms of like, we're still producing a newspaper, other companies are still managing to carry on. companies that might have had inflexibility around people being at home do you think that you know it's really important now for them to sort of see that their their thoughts on that were maybe flawed and this is a chance to you know re-examine things 
Um, I do, but I think, um, you know, we're all learning a lot of things, some of which we didn't expect. At the beginning of the crisis, I remember somebody saying, or the beginning of the lockdown, I remember somebody saying, at last, managers are finally going to understand that remote working is still working and we'll all be able to work from home. And I remember thinking, oh, yikes, I do hope not. (laughs) And I think, you know, I think two contradictory things are happening at the same time. First of all, as you say, a huge amount of completely effective, successful work is being done remotely, and it's fine. And, you know, the suspicion that some people had that, oh, it wouldn't work, or people would just be goofing off, you know, that's clearly been disproved, which is great. But the other thing that people are discovering is they hate working from home all the time. (laughs) I mean, somebody said to me the other day, I even miss the people at work that I don't like. <laughs> you know, that actually it's really clunky and can be super uh, difficult to do any kind of collaborative work. You know, whether it's on Zoom or Skype or whatever, it just becomes so difficult in a way that having a 15 minute, you know, confab in the office could resolve issues really, really quickly. And so I think on the one hand, we're finding that, yes, working from home isn't as terrible as the naysayers always thought, but we're also discovering it isn't the paradise that the sort of hyper salespeople of technology suggested either. But Margaret, between those two things, doesn't there lie a lot more flexibility and um, allowing people to find out whether it's something that suits them or doesn't suit them. But at least the conversation can happen now in places where it might not have before. Absolutely. And I think and I hope that everyone's minds are a lot more open, that the people who thought it was terrible are much more willing to concede that actually it, there's really a place for it. And I also hope that the people who thought that, um, you know, that, that, that offices were idiotic will realize that actually there is a very profound social component to work, that a lot of what motivates people actually is other people. And so the social connectivity between people at work is really important. It's a very, very fundamental part of what makes an organization special and productive. So I agree with you. I hope what this means is that instead of being entrenched in extreme positions, people feel that they can work the way that they need to according to the task in front of them. Yeah, that sounds very sensible. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. Now, listen, Margaret, tell me about your own lockdown situation and how things are for you work-wise. <laughs> well, so I'm doing a lot of webinars. I'm doing a lot of podcasts. Um, the great thing about that is I'm reaching all sorts of people that I probably wouldn't have reached through a lot of my live events, you know, in the real world. I also, in a moment of um, rash generosity, um <laughs> set up a delivery service for my local um, uh, farm shop because wow. my neighbor you know, has a dairy farm and he was in a wonderful farm shop and he was saying, I wish we could deliver to people who can't get out. And I said, without thinking, I said, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm just a born in the wall, you know, died in the wall entrepreneur. What can I say? And, um, 
And the consequence is now we have a team of 10 drivers and we get together at one o'clock and we take all, get all the, divide up all the deliveries and go within about a five mile radius of here, delivering to people who really can't get out. And it's really genuinely one of the most satisfying things I've ever done in my life. That's wonderful, Morgan. I'm so glad because I think that's one of the lovely things is seeing our local suppliers and our independent people being supported in that way and finding creative ways around this terrible situation. Um, but another thing it says to me, you're, you sound like you're very busy at the moment. And isn't that one of the big gaps um, that's happening? Because they, they talk about this pandemic as a great leveler and that everyone's in the same boat. But really what I'm seeing is, you know, I've one sister who's never been busier in her work. I have another brother who had to lay himself off. And, you know, there's that gap is really wide, isn't it, in, in terms of how it's affecting people? Yeah. And it really isn't a great leveler. I mean, yes, it's true that we're all in lockdown or almost all of us are in lockdown um there are still quite a lot in london there are a lot of manual workers still going to work on i have to say quite crowded tube trains they're at risk people in hospitals and and care homes they're at risk so that's not you know they're not safe at the same time a lot of people in manual jobs are laid off many are unpaid they're scared of not being able to pay their rent they don't know should they pay their rent or pay their food, you know, buy their food. Will there be jobs after the pandemic when everyone's saying it's going to be the worst economic crisis in history? These people, it's not just that they're bored, they're anxious, they're frightened about what happens next. My daughter has a lot of friends who graduated from university this year. You know, they were going to do internships and placements and all sorts of things. That was uh, stopped instantly. They won't get their graduation. They know that when it comes to jobs, they'll be at the very end of a long, long queue. And they think, you know, I didn't even have a chance to start my career and it feels like it's over. So I think there's a, a huge swathe of people for whom this is an unmitigated disaster. They're not thinking about mindfulness or thank goodness I have time for more <laughs> You know, they're scared to death. They're scared of being sick. They're scared of being unemployed. They're scared of being hungry. They're alone. They're isolated. They don't have people to support them. This is terrible for them. And I think these, you know, rather smug things about, isn't it marvelous to have more time for reflection is horribly blind to the pain and suffering that is everywhere around us. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so important to remember. And I don't know if it's being spoken about enough because a lot of the narrative around it is a very middle class narrative, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's also the case that, you know, you have victims of domestic abuse who are now trapped in their homes. Right. You have victims of child abuse who are now trapped in their homes. I mean, these are very dangerous times for people. You also have you know huge looming mental health issues. And, you know, I'm very proud of my daughter. She's at home here and she runs this uh, poetry website really aimed at using poetry as a way of sustaining mental health. And she's never been busier because actually giving people an opportunity to write is at least some kind of outlet for the grief and the anxiety that they feel. Yeah. 
Well, listen, let's get back to your book because uh, there's such a lot to talk about Corona, but um, let's talk about the book because there's some, you already mentioned the abortion referendum. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I was sort of delighted to see that the Citizens' Assembly made up a part of your book as an example of experimentation, I suppose, with democracy. Why did you choose that example? Well, I chose it because um, I had a very strong instinct, which I think, you know, has only grown stronger, that um, that democracy has become rather rigid in the West. And as a result of that, people increasingly think that it's failing. And it struck me that really since the Second World War, we haven't really done very much to develop democracy. We sort of assumed, well, it got us through the war, so it's fine. And we've left it sort of unevolved and unadapted. And I think that's one reason why people feel, certainly in the US and the UK, that it is really letting them down. And it's also one reason why people may be falling for populist or authoritarian governments because they're losing their faith in democracy. And I thought, well, when you have something, whether it's a an institution or a company or a failing or a family or a marriage that feels rather moribund and rigid, you know, you do experiments to liven it up and to give it a fresh lease of life. And I felt that the lessons that came out of the two Irish citizens' assemblies were so profound and also widely so misunderstood that it was a great example of how powerful experiments can be, but also how carefully they need to be thought through. Because, you know, having interviewed the civil servants who ran the Citizens Assembly and many, many of the participants, I was just bowled over by how much care they took over it. You know, that they really did see this not just as a tool to get an answer. They saw it as an experience from which the entire country could learn. And that transparency and their meticulous attention to detail, I thought was really very inspiring. And I thought it was something that people needed to understand better. And they needed to understand that a citizens assembly isn't just a whole bunch of people getting around, standing around swapping opinions. You know, this was real work done by genuinely committed citizens who knew that what they thought and what their experience of life were really, really mattered. And I think if we're going to have a democracy that is fit for the future, we have to recognize that we need to keep letting it evolve. And I thought this was a beautiful experiment of doing experiment in doing that. Yeah, I find it quite moving, actually, with a couple of the people you interviewed. One of them was a barman. And just to see how seriously they took it, because we didn't necessarily hear those stories at the time. And also, I was really... Uh, Delighted to read about, I think her name is Sharon Finnegan, uh, the civil servant who was, yeah, who was in there and being sort of told, oh, this is going to be a nightmare by her colleagues and who really took it and ran with it and made sure it was robust and that it could work properly. Yeah. And the work she did, you know, just making sure there was no jargon in the briefing documents, you know, making sure that every voice was heard, that every question was asked, that no propaganda was allowed to seep into it. I mean, it's a really heroic piece of work. And I think the whole world has a lot to learn from it. And as I say, I think business leaders have a lot to learn from it. You know, that most business leaders think, well, how do you know what people want? They say, well, we'll do a survey. 
And then you ask them what the survey results mean, and the honest answer is they haven't a clue. I had a I worked with one business leader recently who said, "Well, you know, we did an employee engagement survey, and um, and it's you know it's looking good." I said, "Well, what did it say?" He said, "Well, it's you know we went from fifty nine percent to sixty one percent." And I said, well, first of all, I don't think that's what I'd call a great leap forward. It could be you just, you know, in the intervening period, you got rid of all the people who hate working here. Or maybe you just gave the survey on a sunny day. What do you think people actually feel about working here? And he looked totally blank and said, well, how would I know? And I said, you have to talk to them. You have to ask them, you know, do you go home at work and talk to your family about what you've done? Or do you even get home in time to talk to your family about what you've done? Are you proud of what you've done? Or do you just think it's so tedious and boring you can't bear to talk about it? I mean, you have to have real conversations if you want to understand how the people in an organization experience working there. And surveys are not the way to do it. So I think, you know, I think there's a huge lesson for us, whether it's in companies or in societies as a whole, of learning to listen better to a much richer cross-section of voices and trusting, exactly as you said, that the people that you might write off very easily, they like the barman, they have a lot to offer, but mostly nobody ever asks them. Exactly. And the other one you sort of mentioned earlier is and you found quite moving was the uh, the how the treatment was found and developed to tackle the AIDS crisis. Why did you include that in the book? Well, um, I read quite a lot about it. There's a fabulous book called How to Survive a Plague by a, a writer named David France. And I was absolutely bowled over by it because even though I was, you know, a sentient adult during this period, there was so much I hadn't known. And then it really struck me that there was a fantastic parallel to be drawn between the AIDS crisis and the climate crisis. That in both cases, this is terrifying. In both cases, we're not quite sure how to tackle it. Everybody has opinions. There's a lot of noise, but it's urgent. It's as urgent as anything can be. And the great lesson, I mean, there are so many lessons that we should apply now to the climate crisis. And, you know, which include try everything. Don't wait for the perfect plan. By the time the perfect plan turns up, it'll be too late. Try everything. Talk to everybody. Be prepared to sit down with your opponents. What, what, what created the big breakthrough in the AIDS crisis was that originally activists were attacking pharmaceutical companies for not doing enough. Eventually, the activists decided we have to know more about pharmaceutical development than the drug companies in order to get their attention. And so ultimately, what happened is the drug companies started realizing we're going to accelerate drug development. We need lots of AIDS patients. And these activists will find them for us. And so these fierce opponents were able to find a way to work together to solve the crisis. And I think when it comes to climate change, as much as activists recoil at the concept, we have to be prepared to talk to everybody. We have to make the fossil fuel companies 
part of the solution. We have to experiment with everything because time is running out exactly as it was for people dying of AIDS. And we have got to mobilize everyone and accept any good idea that comes to the table from any source. Do you think, Margaret, that the messages in your book about using creativity and imaginative solutions um, and the fact that uncertainty is a good precursor to creativity and ingenuity. Do you think those lessons are being are landing with people? I mean, you've written a book about it and you're evangelizing on all the podcasts and the different we- webinars, but, but is that landing, do you think? Well, I think it does with a lot of people. I mean, a lot of readers have said to me, thank goodness, you know, there's a counter narrative to the notion that we all have to become software engineers and learn how to write code. You know, that there's a different way of thinking which has real value. And, you know, I have to say, of course, you know, there are quite a number of Irish writers in my chapter on thinking like an artist uh, from whom I've learned a lot. And a chief among those is, is Sebastian Barry, who said to me, you know, the thing about being a novelist is you realize at any moment anything could happen. And I thought, so so novelists live with that uncertainty and are able to think about all the things that could happen. And that's tremendously powerful in crises like the one that we're in now, which is think about all the things that could provide solutions, all the outcomes that are possible, both good and bad. Because what I, I have seen from organizations in crisis is the ones who get through it are the ones who are most creative in coming up with hundreds of potential scenarios. So when you're really in crisis, as we all are now, what you need is not a neat, tidy, rules-bound spreadsheet. You know, what you need is ferocious, creative thinking around possible solutions and improvements and therapies and so on. I have a friend who lives in the next village Uh, who runs a diving center. This is going to sound very remote, but hang with me. Um, And as part of running the diving center, he knows a lot about dealing with oxygen in deep sea diving. And he has invented in the last two weeks, well, he invented a rebreather for deep sea diving. And in the last two weeks, it occurred to him that it uses much less oxygen than ventilators. So in the last two weeks, he got the attention of the cabinet. He said, I can build you a, a, a ventilator for 500 pounds, not 20,000 pounds, using existing parts that hospitals already have. And I think we can start in a week. Now, that's creative thinking. You know, so they've thrown huge amounts of money at him, you know, and, all, and lawyers and all sorts of stuff. But you, in a crisis, you've got to have creative thinking. And when you're not in a crisis... You have a very, very much richer life and robust life and society if you have more creative thinking about what do we need? What could we do with the things that are around us? And definitely in confronting the climate crisis, we need that creative thinking more than ever in human history. Margaret, I just think it's a bit sad listening to you because on the one hand, you're talking about what we can learn from artists. And I just know, even from looking on social media at this time, it's artists that are really, really struggling and ones who who will be probably or they're feeling they're going to be left behind in when, when things really do, e- the economic recession happens and we should be valuing them much more, really, I think. 
Well, I think that's right. But I also think that in, in many areas, we are valuing them much more. You know, people are reading books more. They're watching films more. True, they're yeah. definitely reading and writing poetry more. I mean, I think the fact that your news ends with a poem, you know, is such a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. Um, you know, so I think actually a lot of what's getting people through this and helping with their mental health is the arts. And as I said, you know, my daughter runs this poetry uh, project, you know, and she's getting fantastic poems submitted by people in all sorts of situations. And, you know, the truth is we can live without a lot of the stuff we're used to, but we can't live without the capacity to communicate and to create beauty and to consume beauty, because that gives us a sense that actually continuing is worth it, that life is worth it. Yeah, that's so true. And I hadn't thought of it in that way. And I think you're, you're, it's right. I just hope that continues on. I hope that we realize that we can value them more and that in a crisis like this, those are the things we can rely on. And it, like you say, it's not just stuff, material things. Because I think it's shown up that, do you feel like that? Well, I've seen some people say that capitalism, all its failings has really been shown up by this crisis. Well, I think that's right. I think that's right, because, you know, capitalism, you know, is what stripped, you know, is, is part of why the healthcare systems are stripped of the resilience that they need. You know, you can't buy a vaccine against this virus. You need human endeavor, human creativity, human collaboration. Throwing money at a virus makes no impact at all. And in fact, the useful things that governments have done has been really about not thinking about the profit motive or the market. It's just been thinking, actually, what society needs is resources and wherever, whatever they are, wherever they are, we need to galvanize those. So I think it's made us dig much deeper and to understand that what makes a healthy society is not just its GDP. And one of the things it's made me think is how, how far in the last 20 or 30 years We've just let economics eat our brains. You know, that people are starting to think a society and an economy are the same things. And they are not the same things. Yes, we're going to have an economic crisis, but much more important than that is a social crisis if we don't look after everybody. Now, that may be economically difficult, but it's socially essential. And I think, you know, I'm horrified by the degree to which politics over the last 30 years has been about economics and almost nothing else. And what I hope is that in the post-pandemic settlement, we can at least agree that a healthy society isn't necessarily the richest. It doesn't necessarily have the biggest GDP in the universe, but it's just and it's kind and it's resilient, and it looks after everybody, and it cares about the health of a nation, and the education of a nation, and the safety of a nation, all things which are not measured by GDP. Margaret, you paint an amazing picture there that I really, really hope does happen. But I, I don't know, I just, do you think there, we, there is room for optimism in that? 
that, that, that this pandemic could lead to that kinder, more just society you're talking about? Well, I am an incurable optimist. <laughs> so um, I think it's possible. I mean, there are definitely people going around, you know, talking about a sort of post-pandemic catharsis where we all fall madly in love with each other and create a sort of social nirvana. I'm not that much of an optimist. <laughs> but it's why I think it's so important that instead of thinking what's going to happen, we think much more deeply about how do we craft a post-pandemic settlement so that everyone who suffered in this feels that their needs and concerns and suffering have been taken account of. And my fear is that if we don't do that, we will revert to what we did post-banking crisis. We will revert to efficiency and austerity. And the inequality that we have seen in the last 10 years will grow even faster and deeper and prove socially very destabilizing. So this is a test, not, you know, the pandemic is a test, but actually the big test is how do we deal with each other when it's over? Well, Margaret, I think that's a brilliant way to end it. Uh, I think also I need to give you a little uh, chance to say why everyone needs to read your book. I really enjoyed reading it because of the storytelling that you employ as a device rather than a kind of, it doesn't feel academic. It, it, it's really about human beings and how they've, you know, rallied and how they've managed very different crises. So why at this time more than ever should people go out and buy Uncharted? Well, I'm grateful for what you said, because it took a lot of effort to make it human and engaging instead of, you know, academic or full of statistics or whatever. And my mother-in-law said when she started to read it, she thought, I'll just read the first chapter. And she read the whole, <laughs> she read the whole thing from cover to cover in a day. <laughs> So I think, you know, I think what we're, what we're learning is exactly what the book teaches, which is how much of life is unpredictable. And just because much in life is unpredictable and uncertain doesn't leave us passive and it doesn't leave us helpless. There are huge numbers of ways to engage with life creatively so that we create our future. It isn't done to us. It isn't foisted upon us. We're active participants in the future that we want. It may be uncharted, but that means we have the chance to make the path to the future that we seek for ourselves and for each other. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to send you a link to a song that my friend Patrick wrote a few years ago. The song is actually called The Future is Uncertain. And it has a line in it that says, the future is uncertain. That doesn't mean there's nothing working here and now. And I, I really like it. It's a really positive way of looking at that uncertainty. But Margaret, as always, it's been fascinating talking to you. And actually, I, I feel quite hopeful after talking to you, which is a good thing. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you again, Rasheen. It was always... yeah. Take care of yourself and, and your daughter there um, and stay safe. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that you're now a delivery woman, really. Is that what you are? <laughs> yes, that's right. That among other things, among other things. <laughs> it's funny, I've run huge companies and now I'm running this group of 10 delivery people and I thought, oh my God, I'm back in management. How horrible is that? <laughs> well, listen, May, you always wear those many hats uh, so brilliantly as you, as you always do and take care of yourself. We'll talk again. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Rasheen. Good luck. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Margaret Heffernan. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. 
If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 